Chaim Shaharazani, and in the news, Iran and Saudi Arabia announced they're renewing their diplomatic relations amid rising tensions between Israel and the Palestinians. Iran and Saudi Arabia agreed to reestablish diplomatic relations and reopen embassies after years of tensions between the two countries. The deal, struck in Beijing through Chinese negotiation, represents a major diplomatic victory for the Chinese. At the beginning of his renewed term, shortly after last November's election in Israel, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu announced he wishes to expand the regional peace with Saudi Arabia in mind. What does this all mean? With us to discuss these important regional developments is the Honorable Jason Greenblatt. Jason Greenblatt served as an assistant to the president and the White House special envoy to the Middle East in the Trump administration. He was one of the chief architects of the peace to prosperity plan between Israel and the Palestinians and was one of the key players in laying the foundation for the Abraham Accords. He is the author of the widely acclaimed book In the Path of Abraham, which chronicles his time at the White House and the Trump administration's work with Israel and the broader Middle East. Jason remains involved working towards peace and prosperity throughout the Middle East region, focusing on creating what he calls a Middle East 2.0 by building economic bridges between Israel and its Arab neighbors. Jason, it's a pleasure to have you with us on JBS. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. I'm delighted to be here. So first of all, allow me to ask you, the Abraham Accords are a significant part of your foreign policy legacy, just like we heard in the introduction. I want to ask you, what is your take on this Iranian Saudi detente? What's the reason for it? I think what's important for your viewers to pay attention to is this is about Saudi Arabia. It's less about Israel. Of course, it'll affect Israel most likely, but it's very much about Saudi Arabia. We have to understand that Saudi Arabia has this vision 2030. It has deep plans to completely revitalize and redevelop the country in many ways, in so many different ways than it's been before. I've seen it with my own eyes. It's proceeding very, very strongly. And uh, if I were part of MBS's cabinet, if you will, and he asked me if this was the right thing to do, I would say it is the right thing to do because it should buy the kingdom some degree of calm for a period of time if, and it's a big if, if the Iranian regime behaves itself, if China does in fact have the leverage over Iran that many people think it does. China is playing a major, major role in the Middle East. And I think for Saudi Arabia, this was a smart and the right thing to do. Um, what do you think about the timing? Is there any reason why this is happening now and not let's say last year or next year? It's important to realize that they have been talking with Iran, the Saudis that is, for a very, very long time. And sometimes, including like the Abraham Accords, sometimes things just click into place. I think China has asserted itself in the Middle East because America has withdrawn from the Middle East. I think that they have the power, the prestige, the leverage, the negotiating style. And I think that they were finally able to click that puzzle into peace. Now, we also have to wait roughly two months, maybe a week or so less than two months at this point, to see if Iran will in fact comply with the terms of this detente. And um, I think that we also have to see if Iran, including in that, will uh, comply with stopping the attacks from Yemen to Saudi Arabia. The attacks from Yemen to Saudi Arabia are very similar to the attacks from Gaza to Israel. Iran controls both of them, they turn it on and off, and hopefully Iran will comply and keep calm there for the benefit of Saudi Arabia. 
And, and what do you think is the Iranian interest in this agreement? I think it has a lot to do with China. They have very little money left. The Americans and others who have complied with American sanctions have really caused a tremendous amount of economic damage to them. Of course, you have the protests, which while I have, you know, I have not heard actually too much about them in the recent news, which is unfortunate. So we don't know what's happening with that. China is buying their oil, China is helping their economy. And I think Iran is sort of saying to itself, the Iranian regime, well, obviously we're not gonna get anywhere with the Americans, which is a good thing. Let's turn ourselves over to China and see if China could help us get out of this mess. And do you think that um, the, there is, you mentioned the, the United States, do you think there is a chance for a signing of a, a nuclear agreement between Iran and the West under these circumstances? Well, I hope if there is a chance, and I don't think there is, but I hope it's nothing like the JCPOA or JCPOA.2 under President Biden. It's a very, very weak agreement. It's bad for America. It's terrible for Israel. It's bad for the Europeans. I don't think they realize that. They should, by the way, realize that because as we all know, Iran is supplying drones to Russia. Right. Russia is using that to attack Ukraine right in Europe's backyard. Right. But the Europeans just have a completely different approach. They, you know, they just want to keep their heads in the sand keep calm for today, worry about tomorrow. Uh, so I think it is, uh, I, I hope it's unlikely unless there's gonna be a real tough agreement, one that really keeps the region safe for a long period of time, uh, keeps Israel in particular safe. Uh, let's remember that if a country vows to destroy Israel, they try to do it, they really mean it. And, and it should keep the United States as well. And I don't think the JCPOA did that. The JCPOA was really just buying a, a period of time of calm. Right, and as we all know, time passes very quickly. So what to some may seem like eternity to others is the next day. Um, you know, we don't, do you expect, like Iran has been a, a regional destabilizer for a long time, and not just vis-a-vis -vis Israel. We know its negative role in Lebanon, in Syria, vis-a-vis -vis Jordan, of course, Saudi Arabia. Even though they signed this agreement, and like you said wisely, it's going to take a few months to see where we go with that. Do you expect any of these elements in Iran's regional behavior to change? Absent a regime change, which no one is advocating for, but absent a regime change, I don't think so. This regime is bent on certain philosophies, including the destruction of Israel, taking over the Middle East, being the leading power of the Middle East, eventually maybe even controlling places like Saudi Arabia. So absent a regime change, I don't see that. But, you know, they're smart enough to know that for the moment they have to take a breath and uh, regroup, if you will, which uh, still, you know, you go back to your first question, it's still the smart thing for Saudi Arabia to do. Saudi Arabia needs calm at this moment as well. And the easiest way for Saudi Arabia to get calm at the moment is working with China to get this deal in place, which it has. Hopefully it'll last. And, you know, we'll see what happens when it comes to Israel with this deal. Right. You mentioned the Chinese mediation. Is this a message in any way, shape or form to the United States? The pri I don't believe that the primary intent was to be a message to the United States, a sort of thumb in the United States eye, if you will. But there's no doubt that uh, the underlying message is, you know, this is no longer the United States' region. Frankly, it's no longer the United States is the most powerful country in the world that controls all foreign policy. I think for us uh, in the United States, it would be foolish for us to think that this wasn't an underlying message. It wasn't the driving force, but it's certainly a message. And it's because we fell asleep at the switch. We fell asleep at the switch with regard to China, who is a power. We don't recognize it. We don't respect it. That's a mistake. 
We fell asleep because we didn't turn our attention to the Middle East strongly enough. We sort of abandoned the Middle East when Saudi Arabia and the UAE were attacked. We gave lip service, we said the right things, but we really didn't stand by the region. Um, and you know that has its effect on people. At some point, the leadership in that region thinks to itself, can we really rely on the United States of America? Right, and of course, you know, we've seen Russian involvement in the region. There is no void in the, in the Middle East. Um, you mentioned Saudi Arabia. So for such an agreement between Iran and Saudi Arabia, do you see any benefit to it in the region? Do you think it will stop the fighting in Yemen and the horrendous humanitarian catastrophe that's taking place there? There are many who say that it will. Uh, again, we'll wait uh, almost these two months to see what they do in Yemen. But there are many to say that that might. There are many who say that that might be the silver lining here. That Iran may finally turn off the fighting in Yemen, allow Yemen to finally regroup. Uh, the Saudis have pumped a ton of money into Yemen. So, uh, of all the things that might come out of it from a positive light, besides giving some calm and stability to Saudi Arabia, there is a chance that Yemen will finally be able to breathe a little bit again and start to move in a, in a positive direction. Right, because the Iranians have no problem playing in other people's backyards or uh, you know, destroying other societies as we've seen in Lebanon. Um, but I, I definitely share your hope that hopefully we will see an improvement in that situation. And now I want to touch about something that you already mentioned briefly, and that is Israel and Saudi Arabia. We've heard Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu announce when he has reestablished his sixth government that one of his goals is to expand regional peace. You are highly experienced in this regional diplomacy. We know that Saudi Arabia has been one of uh, Benjamin Netanyahu's primary goals to you know, open the doors to peace between Saudi Arabia and Israel. How do you see this agreement impacts the chances for an Israeli-Saudi Arabian progress, normalization, peace, whichever way you want to call it? Well, Saudi Arabia wasn't ready to go into a deal like the Abraham Accords yet. They've certainly made some very positive movements. They allowed flyover rights over their country last summer. Um, Oman allowed flyover rights recently, which I'm sure it wouldn't have done without Saudi um, agreement. Uh, they have made some positive statements, uh, even during the Trump administration, about the Israeli-Palestinian peace plan that President Trump uh, released, which I had worked on so um, so hard. Right. Uh, so there are many. Oh, those are, by the way, those statements have been, you know, continuously quoted and and echoed. I can uh, I can say in the Israeli public uh, political discourse and elsewhere. So we've seen a long-lasting impact of the work that you've done. Thank you, and indeed, and the and the Saudis have been moving in that direction, but they were far, far away for lots of different reasons. It's a much bigger country than the United Arab Emirates and certainly Bahrain. Um, they're the keeper of the two holy mosques. It's a, it's a population that was educated a certain way and there's a lot of time that's needed in order to change that form of education. But I will say there's, you know, every time I go back to the kingdom, there are so many, um, discussions that I have about Israel. It's just, it's a completely different world. Bibi Netanyahu is the type of prime minister I think could make progress at the right time, but the right time I don't think is today. First of all, the Iran-Saudi deal is definitely makes the Abraham Accords or anything like it less of a priority. We also saw literally the day before the announcement of the Iran-Saudi deal, the Saudis made public something that they've been saying quietly for a while, the demands of what they want in order to normalize with Israel. By the way, they're very logical demands, whether or not they're realistic demands, whether or not the United States is willing to or can or should give Saudi Arabia 
the things that it's asking for is a whole other discussion, but there's nothing that Saudi Arabia has asked for that isn't irrational or appropriate. Um, and the other thing is Israel's consumed right now with so many different things, right. uh, it's probably not the right time. Now, hopefully, whatever it is that's um, happening in Israel right now that's causing so many uh, challenges is going to pass. We don't know if it's going to pass quickly or it may take quite a while, but I don't think the time is ripe at the moment for anything like the Abraham Accords with Saudi Arabia. I hope that right. in some period of time in the not too distant future, uh, we chat again and uh, we're saying something completely different. There's nothing more than I'd like to say, I was wrong and see it tomorrow, but I don't think it's realistic. Amen, amen. Um, what are some of those demands made by Saudi Arabia, just so that our viewers are more educated and informed on the topic? Well, one is arms sales. They need arms to defend themselves. They're seeing all these arms that are going over to Ukraine. And yes, Ukraine is an act of war, of course. Right. But there are very big restrictions with respect to sale of arms to Saudi Arabia. Let's push the restrictions that are might be in place because the United States has to give Israel a qualitative military edge. Let's assume for a moment either what they're asking for doesn't violate that or Israel decides to waive that and Congress decides to waive that. But generally speaking, there are significant restrictions on what Saudi Arabia is allowed to buy, which leaves Saudi Arabia at a very, very big disadvantage when it comes to needing to defend itself. Another thing is they want the prestige, the honor of being the type of ally that the United States refers to other countries as. You know, right now we really disrespect Saudi Arabia. We don't see it as that kind of ally. We don't, you know, uh, President Biden disrespected the Crown Prince, MBS. So they're looking for that as well. Um, and these are the kind of things that make a very, very big difference to being able to keep the country safe. Right. Um, you know, you mentioned a very important word um, just a, a few seconds ago, education. And I want to touch on a personal aspect, if you will, um, in this spirit. You, you're an observant Jew. You're a supporter of Israel. And your family just recently took an interesting trip in the Middle East. I mean, that must have been. You're no ordinary envoy. And you're still doing a lot of work in the region. Well, I would love to hear from you a little bit of perspective about your experience in this regard, your, your, your recent trip, and how you see the reality unfolding before our eyes. It's always been very important for me to have my family connect with the people that I deal with, both in government, in that region, as well as business ties and personal friends. So if you told me in 2017 that I would take my family on a vacation to Qatar and Saudi Arabia, I would have looked at you like, what are you talking about? And this year we decided we would go on vacation. We had yeshiva break. We went on vacation to Qatar and Saudi Arabia. And I have to say, it was really, it was wonderful. First of all, it's the first time I wore my kippah almost fully in Saudi Arabia and fully in Qatar. Um, we had a beautiful Shabbat dinner in Doha with some friends from Qatar joining us. We had many conversations about Israel, about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, about Israel's place in the region. It's changed so much. It's changed so much since 2017. It changes every time I go, and I go every couple of months, frankly. And uh, my wife and kids, they were slightly nervous, to be honest, at the beginning, even though I had been there many times. Some of my kids had been to Saudi and Qatar before, but they had a wonderful time. They had deep, meaningful conversation. Um, the fact that I wore a kippah actually was a positive. There were people who came up to us specifically to engage because they either thought we were from Israel or they recognized that we were Jewish. Everybody was polite, everyone was warm. Listen, that doesn't mean that they agree with how I speak about Israel. I, you know, it's important to note that there's no doubt there's significant differences of opinion between what I believe about Israel and the Palestinians and the conflict 
and what many of these people do. But it is time and we can have these discussions and we can have them respectfully and openly. And that's how you make progress. You know, I, I was there a difference like putting your keeper on when you're with government officials as opposed to wearing it in public, like you just mentioned? Yes, the trip before this, I wore my kippah with government officials. Uh, this was in the fall. This time I just decided to wear it all the time. And we were walking around, you know, Saudi Arabia has all of these entertainment zones now, Qatar as well. We were walking around in the type of amusement parks, the boulevard, uh, in the shopping malls with kippot. One guy came up to me and my son uh, in a shopping mall and uh, with a giant smile on his face and he shook our hands and he says, welcome to the kingdom. I'm so happy to see you here. So very, very big difference. But, you know, I, I'm not saying it's for everyone. You have to be ready to do it. And some people are afraid. And I recognize that. And I guess myself, I was uncomfortable with doing it. By the way, I felt more comfortable there doing it than in some cities in Europe. Right. I was just going to ask you, like, how do you view this evolution that you're walking around being welcomed as an observant Jew in places like uh, Saudi Arabia and the region, whereas in, in Europe, and by the way, in some places in the United States, we've just, you know, we've seen videos of Jewish teens attacked in Crown Heights right here in New York. Yeah, so it's, it's very different. I, I'll go back to what happened in the UAE. I didn't wear my kippah at the beginning uh, in the UAE, but after the Abraham Accords, I started wearing it, and it was just like a light switch. You'd walk around the Dubai Mall, many, many people came up to me to welcome me, and now when I wear it in the UAE, I was just there in uh, February, it's not even a thought. I just wear it, and I feel comfortable, and it feels normal, and I wouldn't say that about many cities in Europe, and uh, you know, I haven't reached that point in the United States, but your point is well taken. Um, in Saudi Arabia and Qatar, I'm not, it's not quite there yet, and, and it won't be for a while, but certainly I felt comfortable and it is an evolution. And I think with more time, more education, more conversation, it's going to happen, that more people will do it and it'll be warm and welcome. I think what's also important is you have to recognize that in Europe, uh, God is less relevant. In fact, sometimes in Europe, God is a, a bad thing. Whereas in countries in the Gulf, God means something. You have observant Muslims, you have non-observant Muslims, you have less observant Muslims, but like the Jews, God means something, and therefore they have a respect for religion, even if it's not their religion. That's um, that's a wonderful perspective. You, you continue to do work in the region to promote uh, peace and understanding through economy and business. Can you share a little bit about what you're, what you're doing now at the moment to uh, push the needle forward on regional understanding? So a lot of what I do is connecting Israeli and American companies with countries and companies in the Gulf countries. Um, there's a, a deep interest in ties, certainly with Israel uh, and, and especially America. I think Americans don't quite understand the Gulf the way they should. They're a little bit afraid of the Gulf and they shouldn't be. There's just so much happening there. I would actually say that it's probably one of the most exciting economies in the world right now. Um, and in doing that, when meeting, when you meet business people, besides the government, although you have to deal with the government a lot there also, and you could have these discussions about business, you naturally end up getting into personal conversations. It's a much more um, warm, friendly environment. Therefore, it's a more relaxed environment, which is, again, why I brought my family there. So you could have deep, meaningful conversations about just about everything there. And uh, that's I think what helps move the needle forward. And what I like to say to people is, look, we had our time in the White House and thank God we made tremendous progress. But today, everybody's an informal ambassador. The more you go to countries like this and show them what you're about, what America's about, what Israel's about, what Judaism is about, the more progress we may have. 
I love it. Everybody's an informal ambassador. So true. Um, if I may, I'd love to tap a little bit into your Israeli-Palestinian experience for a minute. We've seen rising tensions between uh, the IDF in the West Bank. We've seen Hamas playing an active role. We've seen a year, a bloody year, with many Israeli victims of terror attacks and clashes between Israeli security forces and Palestinian terrorists. Can you share a little bit of that experience that you have in the Palestinian arena? How do you see what's happening now and the long-term impact of it? Well, the long-term impact remains bleak. Uh, President Abbas is unlikely to sign any kind of peace deal, uh, not because he is necessarily anti-peace, but the peace that he envisions is not the peace that's realistic or achievable or appropriate. Um, there's no doubt that the tension continues to rise, and I think it's going, to, unfortunately, going to continue to rise further. I think Israel has to do what it has to do to defend itself. You know, they're going into these areas because the Palestinian Authority uh, refuses or is simply unable to go into these areas to keep calm, to keep safety. One of the things I tell all of my friends in the Gulf is, do you think these young Israelis want to be going in there? Do you think their commanders and the idea of leadership wants to send them in there? That's the last thing that they want to do. But it's their job to keep the country safe, and this is what they have to do. There are times mistakes happen, that's true. Um, I disagree with President Biden on many things on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, perhaps most things. One thing I agree with him, which he has said clearly, is this is not the time to work on Israeli-Palestinian peace. He's absolutely right on that front. It's unfortunate, it's sad, but it's realistic. It's realistic. And you mentioned Mahmoud Abbas. How do you see Palestinian leadership? Where is it going? And how do you see the three-state solution? Hamasistan in Gaza, the West Bank with the Palestinians. How is that going to work? Well, most people forget that important point. You know, they think that if President Abbas and Prime Minister Netanyahu would sit at a table and figure out a deal, everything would be great and peace would break out and everyone would hug. And what they forget is you have Hamas. Hamas has vowed the destruction of Israel. Um, you know, they rule over two million Palestinians in Gaza. People think that or people claim that it's Israel who blockades Gaza. Yes, Israel has, a, you know, as does Egypt surrounds Gaza to make sure that things don't go into Gaza will come back and harm the Israelis and, and the Egyptians in the case of the Egyptians and smuggling and all that. But until you figure out a way to solve the bitter dispute between Hamas and the Palestinian Authority and Fatah, it's impossible to have peace. So when people talk about Israeli-Palestinian peace, you should ask them, how are you going to make peace between the Palestinians? Only once you do that could you achieve any form of peace uh, with Israel. And then, you know, here, here we go towards the end of our interview, we go back to the beginning because Iran is a major destabilizer of the region, whether working with Hezbollah in Lebanon threatening Israel, whether supporting Hamas and Gaza in their ability to continuously fire missiles and rockets into Israel. And that hasn't seen any improvement, especially with Islamic Jihad um, operating extensively also from the West Bank and attacking Israelis. 100%. And look, maybe China will have some success. Maybe China will finally be able to say, listen, Iran, if you want our money, you need to keep calm all over. Not a long-term solution, but if they save lives by doing that and there's calm in the region for a period of time until perhaps new leadership comes up. You asked me about President Abbas and new leadership. There is no leading candidate to replace President Abbas. It's likely to break out into some sort of conflict among the Palestinians when President Abbas uh, departs the scene. But perhaps, perhaps China can have some sort of positive influence here. And I'd love to see the Biden administration work with China on that. We may have tremendous competition and much worse with China in terms of 
what's happening. There's a tremendous amount of tension. But if we could work with China on these issues and try to keep calm in the Middle East, that benefits China, it benefits us, and it benefits all of our allies in the Middle East, including Israel, Saudi Arabia, the UAE, and others. So it's like you said before, um, and like was mentioned, there is no void in the Middle East. So we might as well roll up our sleeves and get to work because if we want to have any long-term effect on the region, that needs to be done. And you, Jason, sure have done so in the course of your term as envoy and to this very day, um, especially with your trip with the family, a manifestation of the prospects of peace and a glimmer of hope in times that are unfortunately marked by controversy and difficulty. So thank you so much for your wise words and long-term work in making this world a better place. And I really appreciate the time you took to join us uh, on JBS. Thank you so much for having me. And to all of you, our viewers, I hope you got to learn something from today's conversation with Jason Greenblatt. Peace can be found in the toughest and most unpredictable of places. I'd like to thank our director, Sloan Copeland, JBS's managing director, Dara Golob, our technical manager, Michael Paley, transmission manager, John McDevitt, and to our wonderful producer of In the News, Carol Lilienthal. For JBS, I'm Shahar Azani. Until next time, see you soon. Shalom and later.